Now Ben is going to do a reading for today. Today's reading is John chapter 17, 6 to 19. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have a full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. We've been working through John's Gospel, and today we are at the second part of the, the prayer of Jesus that's recorded in chapter 17. It is um, divided into three sections. So last week, uh, the focus was on Jesus and the Father. This week, uh, the focus is on the disciples. And next week, the focus is on future believers. That's us. In the section today, Jesus identifies the disciples as having been given by God. And he tells why he is praying for them. The first thing is that they know the Father that Jesus has revealed. The word revealed literally means to render apparent. So Jesus, in all of his teaching, has been saying to them, here's what God looks like. And they've come to that point where they've got a much better, deeper understanding. Of course, they will understand much more in the weeks to come in their story. But also because they've accepted and obeyed God's word. Isn't that amazing? Now, when you read the story, you see that time and time again, they get it wrong. They say the wrong thing, they do the wrong thing, they don't understand. But Jesus focuses on what they get right. He focuses on those moments that they are faithful, that they do the right thing, that they say the right thing. And he says in his prayer, they have obeyed your word. I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. You know, they are often slow to understand, quick to grumble, and they're argumentative. 
quite a lot of the time. And yet Jesus is so gracious with how he describes them. He could have pointed out all their failures, but instead he celebrates their successes. I, for one, am delighted to know that when Jesus looks at me, he would rather celebrate my success than castigate me for all the times that I've got it wrong. And that's what he does for all of us. We see, we know our failures. Of course we do. But Jesus looks at them and says, you're my son or you're my daughter, you're my child and I love you more than you'll ever know. Despite all of that, he remembers the steps of faith that we take. He's praying because they believed that he was sent by the Father. Part of verse 8 that says, they knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. It's interesting again because they, they didn't always believe. They, they, they often doubted and wavered and, and in, a, in a few hours for him, they're all going to run away. They're going to leave him in the garden when he's arrested. And yet Jesus here saying, they knew with certainty and they believed because he knows that in a few weeks when Holy Spirit comes, they are going to be so certain. They are going to know with full certainty. Peter spoke for them earlier in John's Gospel. In John 6, 69, we believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, when there are times when we question or doubt or wonder, we're no different to anybody else. We all go through those moments. And yet, if we can say we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God, that's what matters. Then again, he's praying for them because they bring glory to him. Verse 10, glory has come to me, says Jesus, through them. It can be translated, I stand glorified in them. Which, of course, leads us to the question, does glory come to Jesus through us? So that's why he prays. But what does he pray? Here he is, he's in these last few hours of life with them. I don't know, I mean, Julie was talking earlier about what you do with your friends. Would you not have wanted to say, oh, I pray that they would have enough money, that they might get a good job. You know, I want you to keep them safe. I want you to, you know, keep them from harm. Don't ever let any of them get ill. All that. Would you, I mean, that's probably what I would have done. I quite fancy that for myself and for my pals. It's not really what Jesus does. First, he does pray for their protection. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Verse 11, and then in verse 15, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That name Holy Father. 
It captures both God's transcendence and his tenderness. It balances the idea of ultimate purity with intimate paternity. He is mighty and majestic and powerful and awesome. And yet, he is also dad. And we need to have a proper sense of fear when we come to God. Because that's what awesome means. It means it, you know, it provokes awe. <laughs> you know, we, we, you know, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, and you know, I, in, in the year that King Isaiah, I saw the Lord. And he is overwhelmed because God is awesome. And we need to remember that. But we also need to remember that he is also dad. Jesus has kept his followers safe and secure. And now he says, I'm having to go, but I'm returning them to you, Father, to look after them, to keep them. He knew that with his departure, Satan would begin to shift his schemes away from Jesus, away from tempting him, away from having people attack him, and turn his attention to the disciples. And so Jesus prays that the Father would be with them, to keep them. Verse 12, while I was with them, I guarded them. I kept them safe through the name that you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one who was headed for ruin. It happened so that scripture would come true. I think the scripture that he's referring to there is possibly Psalm 41 verse 9, which says, even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Judas has already gone out, uh, as we read before, into the dark, which is a, a sign that he has uh, gone over to evil. We need to realize that it doesn't mean that we'll be protected against any harm. God's people still have accidents. They still get ill. They still suffer. But it means that we have a hope beyond this life hope for eternity. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And that's something of the protection of God in our lives. Yes, there will be things that come to us. Yes, there will be trials and tribulations. Yes, there will be problems. But God says, I will be with you in them, and I will not allow anything that's too much for you if you stand in me. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's not one that we talk about very much nowadays. Because nowadays we want everybody to be happy. We want everything to go well for everybody. 
And if you look at the media, that's what you'll find. We've got to respect everybody's view. We've got to trust everybody. We've got to be all lovey-dovey and it's all wonderful. But actually, that's not the reality of life. I struggle to consider it joy when things are not going the way I want or or when I'm having a hard time. But that's what we're told to do. Consider it joy when things are not going the way you want. Rather, trust in God and see your faith grow. Secondly, Jesus prays for their sanctification. To sanctify someone or something is to set apart that person or that thing for the use that was intended by the designer. A pen is sanctified when you use it to write or to draw. Glasses are sanctified when you use them to be able to see properly. In a theological sense, in in a church sense, things are sanctified when they're used for the purpose that God intends. A human being is sanctified when he or she lives according to God's purpose and design. It's a churchy-sounding word. There's lots of churchy-sounding words, but this is one of them, and you think, what? What? Sanctification. To be sanctified means to be set apart to give yourself to God, to live for him, to serve him. It's a word that speaks of allegiance to Jesus. And it involves sacrifice. It involves giving up something of ourselves, our own attitudes, our own desires, our own purposes, and saying, I want to do what you have for me. You show me what your plans are and help me to do that. And as we do that, there's a process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. And when Jesus was talking about it in this prayer, He was being sanctified because he was doing God's will. And so in the garden of Gethsemane, he's there, he's praying, he knows what's coming, it's really difficult. And he says, if you can, will you take what's to come away? I don't want to have to go through this. But then he says, but not my will. Your will be done. That's sanctification, because he's doing what God wants. And in Hebrews 10, verse 10, it says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus doing his bit means that we have the possibility of new life with God. And through that, we can be sanctified. It happens through the Word and the help of the Holy Spirit. The only way to to live for Jesus is to know what, what the Bible says about them, to know what God says about him and about us and about how we should live. And so I want to 
heartily recommend that you read the Bible as often as you can, that you ask God to help you to understand it, because it's not just enough to read it. There are lots of people in universities all over the world who read it, but don't believe it. And it's just another book. But for believers, it's much more than just a book. It's the living and active Word of God. And and we're talking tonight about hearing from God. Well, Well, I hear from God when I read the Bible. I understand that when something jumps out of the page at me, it's because God says, this is my word for you. So we need to read it and we need to understand it. But we need to ask Holy Spirit to help us to understand it. It's not really an option if you want to follow Jesus. Reading it is something that we really need to do as much as possible. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, when we follow God's word, it helps us not to sin. When we believe that God's word is the truth and accept its truth for ourselves, we're introduced to Jesus and we are made holy through faith in him. Verse 14 of the reading says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 tells us that Satan is the God of this age. And John writing in 1 John chapter 5 adds that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And in chapter 2 verse 16 he says, that the things of the world are absolutely opposed to the things of God. He says, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The word world occurs 40 times in chapters 13 to 17. So you would imagine it's quite important This is the last opportunity Jesus has to speak to his pals. And the word world comes up 40 times. In this chapter alone, it's used 18 times. And it's referring to the ethical and moral system that stands in rebellion to God. Unfortunately, most of us quite like some of the things the world has to offer. And we get a bit close to it sometimes. And that can be problematic. James 4 verse 4 says, Quite strongly, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's pretty stark. Jesus doesn't pray that we would escape from the world or be immune from its hatred. In fact, hatred is inevitable because we don't conform to the world's standards. We're we're supposed to be different. Jesus prays that they might be so dedicated to their task of following him, so sanctified by the truth of his word, that they are able to be the people that he has called them to be. And that's still what he wants for us. He came into the world to bring 
human beings into the presence of God with the good news of the gospel so that we have something that the world can't ever give. We're supposed to be different. Lastly, Jesus prays that they would have joy. Verse 13, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Joy is evident in the gospel stories even before the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, you have Zechariah, you have Elizabeth, you have Mary full of joy and expectation of what is to come. Uh, Joy surrounding Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph at the birth. The angels said it was, they had come with great joy. It was fantastic. The shepherds running back from seeing the baby and they were so overwhelmed with joy that they couldn't keep the news to themselves. The wise men came to worship. They were full of joy. The ministry of Jesus marked by joyfulness. Lots of eating and drinking, parables about feasting. But he's clear that the joy that comes from God is the most important thing you and I can ever have. Luke 10, the 70 are sent out and they're told to go into the world and to just proclaim that the kingdom of God is near and see what happens. Actually, they were also told that they should heal the sick and raise the dead. We should maybe try that one day. And they came back. And they said, even the demons submitted to us in your name. Wow, this is amazing. This Mind-blowing. And Jesus said, you know, that's all okay. That's all okay. But you should be rejoicing that your name is written in heaven. That you know you have a future home there. Crowds rejoiced at the work of Jesus. Zacchaeus rejoices when Jesus comes for tea. Palm Sunday, they were out, they were shouting, they were throwing the cloaks down and the palms down. And Hosanna! They were full of joy. Joy all through this story. Joy takes on a theological significance when it's related to the life of the church. It's one of the marks of the the early church in the book of Acts. They met together every day and they were overwhelmed by joy. And the basis of that joy is Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. In Acts, you see, they they were having communion and they were overtaken by joy. They performed miracles in Jesus' name and there was joy. When people were given the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they were filled with joy. When the Gentiles first were converted, there was joy. The Philippian jailer and his family, what, what do I need to do to be saved? And said, believe, and they were filled with joy. All the way through this story, Jesus and the Holy Spirit gives joy to his people. But joy also comes through suffering and sorrow. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 to 10. Paul writing, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, 
and hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, impurity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, regarded as impostors, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and not yet killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Because they have Jesus. The paradox of the Christian faith is that sorrow and suffering can be transferred into joy by the Holy Spirit. Joy is not static. You don't just get it once and that's it. Can you imagine how dull and boring that would be? Maybe some of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters should know that. It's not a one-off. Paul encourages believers to a daily practice of rejoicing in the knowledge of Jesus and his salvation. Philippians 3, 1, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor. When Jesus Christ is revealed, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If today we want to experience the full measure of joy that Jesus offers, we need to give thanks to him and for him. We need to spend time with him, thanking him for his protection and his care and putting faith into practice so that we can be salt and light in the world, bringing transformation and renewal in Jesus' name. Amen.